Well, we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, and Pastor Minjay and I are kind of doing a tag team as we um, expound this word together. We are in chapter 1, verse 5 to 14, and let me just read from the beginning for context, and we will read all the way to the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 14, and may God implant his eternal word deep into your souls. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has an inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the first, firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning, lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Our great and wonderful God, we uh, thank you for your word, your spoken word, and we ask that you would sanctify us now in your truth. Speak to us today. Speak to us today through the clarity of your gospel that we may see that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to all things and the only ground of our salvation. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, the book of Hebrews has been called the orphaned epistle because it lacks the signature of a human author. But God, who delights to be the father of the fatherless, has adopted this epistle. And instead of beginning with the name of Paul or Peter or James, it begins God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. These opening lines set the trajectory for the entire discourse. God spoke. And it is no wonder that its human author then fades into obscurity and it is alternatively God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who speaks. And as God has spoken, the main theme that he wants to get across in Hebrews is the surpassing glory and the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ in the whole universe as the great anchor of our lives, of the lives of his people. This is a clear point the writer of Hebrews seeks to communicate the absolute supremacy of Christ, which allows for no challenge or rivals, whether from humans or angelic beings. 
Now, it seems apparent that the audience to whom the uh, writer is addressing was attracted by the teachings of the popular contemporary movements. And they were tempted to return to the Judaism that these Jewish Christians were saved from. They were tempted to relapse into their old Judaism way of salvation. And to this end, they must clearly see that Christ is without rival or equal. Now, there's a strong theory in academic circles that these Jewish Christians were the Essenes. Now, recent discoveries of the Dead Sea Squirrels have confirmed that they were, there were different circles of Jewish thought and life in the first century. Just as there is no single Christianity as a religion today, as we have many different denominations, so it was with Judaism back then. The scrolls have confirmed that there were these non-conformist Judaism. And as their title suggests, these Jews did not conform to the traditional rabbinical teaching. There were still, of course, the strong presence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, where their different beliefs have been well documented in the scriptures. But chief among these non-conformist Jewish groups were the Essenes, a community located at Qumran. Now that reminds me of a recent trip to Israel. Pastor Eric, Pastor Danny, and Pastor Minjay visited the Qumran caves, where I heard that Pastor Eric thought he was Indiana Jones and tried to discover an ancient scroll and almost died. Well, they saved that story for another day. But these Essenes who lived in Qumran had some particular views that had some strikingly similar resemblance to the argument of Hebrews. The Essenes anticipated the fulfillment of Jeremiah's new covenant prophecy, but in the form of a renewal and purification of the Aaronic priesthood and the whole sacrificial system prescribed in the Mosaic law. They placed special emphasis on the ceremonial washings. They expected the appearance of a great prophet, the second Moses of Deuteronomy 18.18. And with these expectations, they patterned their lifestyle in a manner very closely to the children of Israel under Moses in the wilderness. And what is more revealing is that these members of the Essene community were awaiting the advent of Melchizedek, whom they believed would fulfill the role of an end-time deliverer. But what's more is that Melchizedek would be subordinate to the supreme figure of the archangel Michael, and they believed that the world would be subject to angelic authority. Now put together, it is striking that all of the beliefs are themes in Hebrews. And you can make a case that the writer of Hebrews is a point-by-point -point argument against the beliefs of the nonconformist Jewish community of the Essenes. Now, as you can imagine, scholars have begun to speculate if Hebrews were written to a group of Jewish Christians who had come out of the uh, Essene Judaism, and now many of them were tempted to return back to it. Now, what we know for certain is that the spiritual condition of the Hebrew professing believers was in danger. They were struggling with the cost of their commitment to Christ. Their world seemed to be falling apart. Following Christ resulted in the loss of their property and freedom and persecution. And the danger that lurked for them is the, was the possibility of death. And these external factors contributed to them being lax in their commitment to Christ. They had, they had lapsed into dullness of ear due to a fading vision of Jesus Christ. And decay had set in. They were experiencing a crisis of faith. And the writer of Hebrews was very disturbed over what had happened to them. And so there was this sluggishness about their faith, as well as an indifference. And they were tempted to revert back to their old way of living. 
Now, hope, you can see that the author talks about something that's very known to us. He's speaking to the spiritual condition that is widespread in evangelical churches today. And we ought to stop and ask ourselves, well, is this characteristic of me? Am I sluggish in my faith? Am I tempted to return to my old way of living? Well, what the author does in our passage today, as well as throughout the letter, points to the remedy of our sluggish faith with a fresh glimpse of the unsurpassed greatness of Jesus Christ. And in setting forth the superiority of Christ to angels by way of introduction, the author does this in two main ways. First is by scriptural teaching, that Christ has a more excellent name than angels, is now confirmed by a sequence of seven quotations from the Old Testament Scriptures. And by basing his argument squarely on Scripture, he's not simply seeking to win a debate with them. No, he's counseling them. He is guiding them by taking them through the Old Testament Scriptures. The writer knows that the temptation was to disregard the authority of God's Word. But God has spoken, you see. And that was the point of the introduction. And they must see that the scriptures are authoritative in every sphere of life. And beloved, if we haven't got that settled, we are open to all kinds of spiritual maladies, all kinds of drifting, all kinds of harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And I am convinced that so much of our spiritual maladies is due to a neglect of the Old Testament Scriptures. For us Christians today, God did not merely give us the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, and together they testify of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The remarkable way in which the two Testaments of the Bible are so closely interrelated with each other was famously stated by the Church Father Augustine when he said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. The key to understanding the greatness and superiority of Jesus Christ in its fullest sense is to see it in fulfillment of those things that were revealed and promised in the Old Testament. What do we find Jesus doing in the Emmaus Road? He quoted the Old Testament to these struggling and doubting Christians. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And it was this fresh revelation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament that lifted their hearts and eyes to Christ and all of His superior splendor and glory as their hearts were burning within them. But the second thing to emphasize really quickly in our introduction is not only the use of the Old Testament Scriptures, but He's building His thoughts around three great contrasts. Now, everyone who's read the epistle of Hebrews knows that this contrast is drawn to the son, to the angels, the son, to Moses, and then spends most of his time with this third contrast, the son of Aaron, the high priest. And these three great contrasts are like concentric circles, working from the widest to the narrowest realm, because the angels were looked upon as those who had supervision over the whole world. And then Moses' supervision over the children of Israel. And then Aaron, who had supervision over the daily life of the children of Israel, and it is to the angels in our passage that the writer of Hebrews contrasts with Christ. Now, what are we to make of angels? Why all this space devoted to angels? Have you ever encountered 
an angel. Later in Hebrews, we are told that some have entertained angels unawares. Hebrews 13, 2, you never know if you have encountered an angel. We are told from Stephen in Acts 7 that the angels were involved in the giving of the law. The prominence of angels is seen in every major event of our Lord's life. The angels announced his conception to Joseph and Mary. They proclaimed his birth to the shepherds in the fields. They were, they were there during our Lord's temptation in the wilderness to aid him. They strengthened him in the agony of Gethsemane. And after Gethsemane, Jesus says how he can call upon 12 legions of angels. They are present again in his resurrection and the rolling away of the stone. They are active in his ascension. Do you remember how those two men with white clothing announced that this Jesus who was taken up to heaven would come down in just the same way? There, there seemed to be this, this exalted view of angels. Colossians 2 speaks of being defrauded by the worship of the angels. And how can we forget the Apostle John and his vision of the apocalypse in Revelation 19, who was tempted to worship an angel and receive the angel's rebuke for it? You see, it is clear that there was this danger of exalting and worshiping angels, but you might be thinking there, well, while th this danger of worshiping angels was a peculiar temptation to the Jewish Christians back then, of what value was this contrast to us? The great value of this contrast is that it heightens our awareness of who Christ is and the wonder of revelation that has come to fulfillment through him. The concentration of this passage is not on the angels, you see, but on Christ. In fact, whenever you see a contrast of angels and Moses and Aaron in this book, what is being displayed before us is the superior glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me just say at the outset of the sermon that this is not going to be one of those how-to sermons as the previous two sermons have been, but rather who is. What kind of Savior and Lord is Jesus Christ? There are five grand truths of Christ's supremacy over the angels that I want you to consider to make certain that Christ is supreme in your lives. Let us consider firstly, Christ is essentially supreme the first old testament quotation comes from psalm 2 a clearly messianic psalm the importance of psalm 2 is underscored by the sheer number of times it is quoted or alluded to in the new testament some 18 times it does this to persuade the people that jesus is indeed the long expected messiah king of psalm 2 and so quoting from psalm 2 7 the author of hebrews writes in verse 5 for to which of the angels did he ever say you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, perhaps you may think, well, I remember in some places in the Bible that angels were called sons of God, like Genesis 6 or Job. But the important point is that no single individual angel was ever called the son of God. Nor was any earthly king, for that matter, ever able to fully fulfill the words of this psalm. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, we know that throughout Jesus' ministry, he is called the divine son of God. At his conception, it is announced to Mary that the child to be born is called the son of the most high. At his baptism, signaling the official beginning of his ministry, the voice of heaven proclaims, you are my beloved son. And at his transfiguration, the divine voice declares from the cloud, this is my son. 
And that is resurrection. He was declared by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.4 as the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. There is no doubt of Jesus' superiority of angels for his uniqueness is underscored that he is the Son of God. But what are we to make of this significant assertion? Today, I have begotten you. At what point in history is today pointing to? And what does this word begotten mean? By, by the way, I do prefer this word begotten to the newer translations. But if you turn to Acts 13.33 with me, Paul applies this passage to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead when he says, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now because of Paul's application to Psalm 2-7, to the resurrection of Christ, modern theologians have pointed to today as the public declaration of Christ's sonship and to his royal dignity as the son of God. Now while it is true that Psalm 2-7 is applied by the Apostle Paul to the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, I much prefer the older theologians who commonly interpreted Psalm 2-7 as a reference to the eternal generation of the Son. The eternal generation of the Son means that the Son of God is essentially and necessarily equal with the Father. He is eternally from the Father, which is why he is called the Son. To quote one author, there was never a time when the Son was not nor was there ever a time when the Son was not begotten from the Father. Now, Paul is not saying in Acts 13.33 that Jesus' sonship had an absolute beginning at his resurrection, as though he were not the Son of God prior to the resurrection. But on the contrary, he's saying that the eternal Son of God entered into a new phase of his sonship at his resurrection. The application of Psalm 2.7 to the resurrection and ascension of Christ is due to the fact that the sonship of Christ provides the efficacy of Christ's risen and exalted life for who but God could rise from the dead. Jesus could not rise from the dead and provide eternal salvation had he not been the eternal son of God. Sonship, after all, is ontological, something, something that Pastor Menje spoke of in the last sermon, before it is mediatorial, it is essential, before it is functional. And so I quote from our Baptist heritage by a theologian named John Gill when he writes, his office is not the foundation of his sonship, but his sonship is the foundation of his office. I take today, not literally, not a point in time in history, but as Augustine explained, the day of an unchangeable eternity in order to show that this man was one person with the only begotten. Why does this even matter? Isn't the point that Christ is superior to the angels? Wouldn't it have been enough to say that Christ is superior due to him being installed as a promised king by virtue of his resurrection? Sure, the writer of Hebrews could have made that point. But he points to the greater argument of the essential nature of Jesus Christ, that he is eternally begotten from the Father. 
As one recent author wrote, Hebrews doesn't quote Psalm 2-7 to say that Jesus climbs up the divinity ladder as if he were lesser glory and must arrive at a more exalted position. Hebrews quotes the psalmist to convey that the son's origin has always been from the father. This is why Hebrews begins by stating that Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Well, the next Old Testament verse that the writer of Hebrews references is in 2 Samuel 7, 14. We're still in the first point. And it goes with Psalm 2, 7. The key word that connects 2 Samuel 7, 14 and Psalm 2, 7 was the word son. And by joining Psalm 2, 7 and 2 Samuel 7, 14, the writer of Hebrews uh, provides strong biblical support that angels are subordinate to the person of the son For he alone enjoys a unique relationship with the father that finds its expression in the designation, my son. For to which of the angels did he ever say, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Now, when we look at the context of 2 Samuel 7, 14, we come to appreciate the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ even further. 2 Samuel 7 is a passage where Yahweh establishes the Davidic covenant where God, through the words spoken by the prophet Nathan, promised to David that in the line of his posterity, one would be raised up who would build a house for God's name and the throne of whose kingdom would be established forever. And as a greater king as Solomon was, and as peaceful as his reign lasted, we realize very quickly that the kingdom that Solomon ruled was far from being described as an everlasting kingdom ruled with righteousness. Indeed, we see from Solomon's reign the early seeds of corruption and the disintegration that would trickle down with every king from David's line. Yet the hope of Israel and this promise given to David did not die, for the prophets confidently looked to the one who would rule from the throne of David. In other words, they heard the promise from God that he would be a father to David's son. And the prophets looked for this, that out of the root and stem of David, one would come who would sit on David's throne to execute justice and righteousness in the land. And after 400 years of silence, from any word spoken by Yahweh, this promise was still alive. And it's of great significance when Zacharias was praying, as we take a little sneak peek into Luke's gospel, that he said this of the Messiah, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Now to whom is God saying this to? To whom is God pointing all of these prophecies to? Not to the angels. And here is the significance then of the Old Testament scriptures. That for every failed king, that for every failed regime, God is bringing its history to its climax in Jesus Christ. And that's what he wants these Hebrews to grasp. Not merely that Jesus is eternally begotten from the Father, but that Jesus is both the Son of God and the Son of David. Truly God and through the incarnation, truly man. And thus he alone is qualified to sit upon the throne of his father, David. And the writer of Hebrews primarily seeks to point to the superiority of Christ to the angels as the eternally begotten Son of God. But secondarily, he wants us to see 
his essential nature, his person enables him to offer himself as a sacrifice so that we too may be sons of God. That is why the first chapter of Hebrews is foundational for what is to come. Only if Jesus is the Son by the Father in nature can we even boldly approach the throne of the grace of our Father. Only if Jesus is the Son of David by virtue of His incarnation can He taste death for everyone and bring many sons to glory. And so in these verses, Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14, the writer affirms the essential supremacy of Christ over the angels in His unique sonship but not only is the superiority of christ seen is in, in his essential nature but secondly also that he is the object of angelic worship now scholars have debated how to interpret this word again in verse six you can either read it like the esv and again when he brings the firstborn into the world he says let all the angels of god worship him this would refer to the first coming but it can be translated with the, again, relating, bringing the firstborn into the world. And when he brings the firstborn into the world again, he says, let all the angels come and worship him. And that would refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I, I take it to refer to the second coming of Christ because it has been already pointed out that Jesus has been appointed heir of all things. And it will be natural then for him to speak of him being introduced to his inheritance, part of his inheritance as the firstborn, is the worship of the angels of God. Now, this designation firstborn does not mean that Jesus is first among the creatures, but rather that he is exalted above the creatures. Colossians 1.18 says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says of Christ being raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But perhaps Colossians 1.15 states it most emphatically when it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And here it speaks of Jesus' priority to all creation as the one who was eternally begotten and thus has the highest place of honor. F.F. Bruce explains he is called firstborn because he exists before all creation and because all creation is his heritage. Now the point is whether you take this as the first advent or the second advent, the angels of God will bow down and worship him because he is the firstborn of all creation. The posture of worship demonstrates the stark contrast between the person of the Son and the angels. Now, this Old Testament quotation comes from Deuteronomy 32 43. But if you turn there, and when you turn there at home, or you can look at them now, to Deuteronomy 32 43, this phrase, let all the angels of God worship him, will not be there. And that is because the author of Hebrews does not quote from the Hebrew text, but from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. The Greek translation adds the addition and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, just a quick side note, the same caves that Pastor Eric almost died in. Well, there is a Qumran manuscript of Deuteronomy found in cave four that supports the reading in Hebrews for it says the sons of God Worship the Lord, providing an early witness to its authenticity. And we know sons of God refers to angels. This translation was not only well known amongst 
the Greek-speaking Jews of the day. But remember that the author of Hebrews is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it confirms that this is the correct interpretation of Deuteronomy 32:43. The Holy Spirit, who is the primary author of the scriptures, directed the author of Hebrews to select a quote from the hymn of Moses in Greek, and then it became an inspired text in the book of Hebrews. And if you look at Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses, we can see why the author of Hebrews selected this passage. The song of Moses occurs near the end of the book of Deuteronomy in the final movement where Moses anticipates the Israelites' entrance into the promised land. And just as God once brought his people into Canaan, now he has brought his firstborn son into the true heavenly homeland and thus opened up the way for other sons to enter into the homeland. Now, if you look at the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, it has three major movements. The first major movement deals with the blessings of God in the past to his people. The second major movement addresses God's anger provoked by Israel's sin. And the third major movement proclaims God's judgment and salvation. And Deuteronomy 32, 43 occurs in this final and third movement. In fact, it is the last verse. And so when Moses proclaims the downfall of God's enemies, and his ultimate deliverance of his people, and the climax of celebrating God's victory, the writer of Hebrews points to Yahweh to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, where in exaltation and victory, the angels pay homage and worship him. Now we know that the Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus, do we not? But do you see what we are reading here in the word of God? Do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing quoting Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage, because when we're reading when the Son of God is in our focus, we're talking about someone who is the truly Lord God of heaven in whom the angels worship. And beloved, if Christ is the object of angelic worship, must he not be the object of our worship? If the angels that dwell in the court of heaven with God Worship Christ. Shall we who are not on earth do the same? If the angels cover their eyes from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Shall we, not men and women made of dust and ashes, humble ourselves in adoration and worship him with our hearts and lives? Well, if I go like this, Ray, we'll never get to the end of chapter one. So. I must be briefer in the next Old Testament quotation. The next set of Old Testament quotations contrast the angels and Christ to speak of the superiority of Christ enthroned above the angels. This is the third grand truth. Now, first quoting Psalm 104.4 in verse 7, it says, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? Now, as powerful as a flame of fire may be, they are creatures and ministers and mere servants of the Lord. The angels are his angels. They are creatures who do his bidding. But Christ is seated on the throne, commanding his angels and directing them as a servants. Notice the contrast in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is a scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. This is a quotation from Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm describing the royal bride as she prepares to enter into marriage with the king. The psalm begins with the words that express the overwhelming joy and love in her heart. The bride celebrates his handsome looks, his royal splendor and majesty, his mighty strength. But then in verse 6, the psalm suddenly explodes with this exclamation, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now what is very remarkable about this quotation from Psalm 45 is that in this passage, God speaks to God. For it says in verse 7, 45, Therefore God, your God has anointed you. This is just like the text that the writer of Hebrews will quote later from Psalm 110. When it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, Psalm 110, along with Psalm 45, is not only an important reference to the doctrine of the Trinity, but it also wonderfully asserts that the true king of glory, the promised Messiah in whom righteousness will come to reign, is one with God himself. And the writer of Hebrews asserts that it is the son that these words are spoken from the father look at the description of his rule it speaks of his throne his rule that will never end his scepter his authority exercise in righteousness his anointing the oil of joy the constant attitude of his heart now while i cannot speak of all that entails in christ being enthroned one of the joys that we have as his people is that we are not merely his servants but we are his companions It says there in the middle of verse 9, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. We are among the companions of whom Christ speaks of. Later in Hebrews 3.1, it will speak of Jesus' follower as those who share in his heavenly calling. This is wonderful news, that we are Jesus' blessed companions forever and ever. You know, a 16th century catechism Ask a penetrating question. But why are you called a Christian? Why are you called a Christian? And it gives us this revealing answer. Because by faith I am a member of Christ. And so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name. To present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks. Against sin and the devils in his life. And afterward to reign with Christ over all creation For all eternity. It is a blessed fact my friends. That we are companions of Christ. Now the next Old Testament passage. Comes from Psalm 102. 25 to 27. And this passage speaks. Of the superiority of Christ. To the angels. Because he is eternal. And immutable. Here is the fourth grand truth. How far above. Are the angels to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is infinitely above them. He is, as the writer Hebrews already said, the appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And it says, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. And then Psalm 102 strikingly contrasts the frail and wasting condition of creation to Christ's eternal and unchanging nature. Look at verse 11 of Hebrews. They will perish, but you remain. 
and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they also will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Everything that the Creator has made bears the mark of time. As theologians of the past have argued, the statement, time began with the creature, rings truer than the creature began with time. Now the psalmist uses this illustration of a garment that changes, that gradually deteriorates, and eventually is rolled up and thrown away. But not so with Christ. For he is, as the writer of Hebrews will later write, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. An old but valued commentator, John Brown, says, in his nature there is no change, in his duration no circle to run, no space to be measured, no time to be reckoned. All is eternity, infinite and onward. Now the fact that Christ is the unchanging Savior will become an important theme throughout this book. For the author of Hebrews will argue that in Christ we behold one who is unchangeable and changeable. For Christ who is unchanging from eternity came to take upon a changeable human flesh and blood in order to become our high priest forever. Friends, if you're here and you are not a Christian, hear the gospel. The unchangeable Son of God took on a changeable humanity in order that you as mutable humans who repent and trust in Christ might enter into a state of immutability. He did this because he knows that in your sinful state before a holy God, you will perish. But if you do not want to perish, look to the unchangeable one in Christ. Let your prayer be that of Henry Light when he wrote, Change and decay and all around I see. O thou who changes not, abide with me. Christian, do you see the importance of the eternal and unchanging nature of Christ? When the cosmic order of this world is shaken prior to the consummation, you will remain because he remains. You will endure because his character makes his old sure. The forever and unchanging status of the son has direct application for the forever stability for those who believe in him. Being anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ is being anchored in eternity. This is why the writer of Hebrews will later argue that the once for all sacrifice of Jesus for his eternal unchanging nature makes the value of that sacrifice efficacious forever and ever. Now the seventh and last Old Testament reference speaks of Christ's superiority over the angels because he is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And here is the fifth grand truth. Notice as the writer of Hebrews comes to a conclusion, he ends the way he began with the question, to which of the angels has he ever said? And then quoting from Psalm 110.1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The answer is, of course, a resounding no one, not one. The exaltation and the supreme position of lordship and authority of sitting at God's right hand was already spoken of in Hebrews 1.3. But the next phrase tells that Christ is enthroned at God's right hand until he be his enemies become his footstool. Now, there's a lot of truth packed into that phrase. The eschatological 
calendar can be summed up into that last phrase. In ancient times, a victorious king or a general would place his feet on the neck of a defeated foe to demonstrate his triumph over his enemy. And when the last enemy of death has been destroyed, Jesus hands over the kingdom to God the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. And after presenting his triumph to God the Father, Christ Jesus will reign forever and ever as every knee will bow down and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. And at the sound of the last trumpet, the proclamation will go forth from the voices of heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And friends, if the enemies of the Lord are made a footstool under his feet as he rules and defends his church and sovereign power, then what can man do to us? What or who can frustrate his omnipotent reign? This, beloved, is the prerogative of Christ at this very moment to defend and to restrain and to conquer all his enemies and our enemies. Let me point you to the practical significance of this. Well, here are these fearful and frail Christians who have started to drift away from God and from their faith and who in the midst of heavy persecution feel that they cannot go on and persevere. What then does the writer do? He points to the sovereign Lord who sits at God's right hand ruling and reigning over all the affairs of men until he puts all of his enemies under its footstool. Christ, my friends, is not in a tomb, but he is on a throne. And God has promised ultimate victory to his people. You see, this is the kind of backbone that the people needed at the time. And this is the kind of backbone we desperately need today. How quickly your worries, your anxieties, all of your concerns, would dissolve if you were to look to Christ seated on his throne where the sovereign Lord says your throne O God is forever and ever no chapter in the entire New Testament lays out the divinity of Christ so comprehensively and profoundly as the first chapter of Hebrews there are other honorable missions such as John 1 and Colossians 1 that describe the deity of Christ. But there is nothing quite like Hebrews 1 for the sheer weight of testimony from the barrage of Old Testament verses to stress the divinity of Christ. And it begs the question, why? Why place so great a stress on the divinity of Jesus Christ? Because as we'll look in the rest of the book of Hebrews, the necessity of Christ's deity is foundational for the fulfillment of his offices as prophet, priest, and king. That is why the writer of Hebrews takes the entirety of the first chapter to convince and to clarify on what these Hebrew Christians are to believe about Christ as the eternally begotten Son of God, as fully God as God the Father in his eternity and immutability. Because if they tamper with this truth, if they mess with the deity of Christ, they will end up with a different religion altogether and a different salvation. Here is the author's argument from beginning chapter that deity and salvation belong together in an indivisible way. Loosen our grip on one 
and we inevitably lose our grasp on the other. This is because the deity of Christ, as the author of Hebrews will argue, is directly related to the character of the obedience of Christ and of its power to affect salvation. Focus on salvation and of its benefits without this greater focus on the person of Christ and you lose the power of Christian ministry. Focus on this and that social issue without the centrality of Christ and all your efforts will be futile and meaningless. Focus on anything in your lives for that matter without this greater focus on Christ and you will inevitably drift away from God and lose all hope. Oh, it is easy to slip away from this, is it not? It is so easy to think about other things concerning our Christian faith and our lives than the person and glory of Jesus Christ. And while there are very other good things to think about, beloved, we won't rightly think about anything unless we get right first and foremost, Jesus Christ himself. Unless we see the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, unless we see him seated on his throne, unless we see his unchanging nature, his sovereign rule, unless we see him as the central focus of our lives, we will never live rightly. There is a great poem written by John Newton, the prolific hymn writer and pastor who put the theology of Hebrews 1 in a memorable way. Let me close with this. What think you of Christ is the test? To try both your state and your scheme, you cannot be right in the test unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you, and mercy or wrath are your lot. Some take him a creature to be, a man or an angel at most. Sure, these have not feelings like me, nor know themselves wretched or lost. So guilty, so helpless am I, I durst not confide in his blood nor on his protection rely, unless I was sure he is God. Some style him the pearl of great price, and say he's the fountain of joys, yet feed upon folly and vice, and cleave to the world and its toys, like Judas the Savior they kiss, and while they salute and betray, ah, what a profession like this avail in the terrible day. If asked what of Jesus I think, though still my best thoughts are but poor, I say, He's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my shepherd, my husband, my friend, my savior from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, and my all. What do you think of Christ? What kind of savior have you come to know? My prayer and hope is that you will realize in you that the foundation and the great engine of our lives must always be the exalted and glorious eternally begotten son of God whose throne is forever and ever impress his greatness on your heart let the magnification of Jesus Christ be your one and only aim in life let's pray together our father we are grateful for these magnificent texts which was written for us in the Old Testament Scriptures to help us to rightly worship and see the eternal Son of God. We acknowledge and we are convinced that the Word tells us of the preeminence and the absolute supremacy of Christ. But we confess how quickly we forget this truth. 
We confess how easily and naturally it is for us to focus on other things in this life, good things as they may be. Oh, have mercy upon us for not having Christ enthroned in our hearts and minds. And though our best thoughts of Christ but before, I pray that we would daily gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would pour all our energies into rightly thinking of him and to make certain that he is the center of our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.